Throughout this Easter time, we are um, going to be looking at, as we talked about last week, looking at um, when Jesus meets us on various roads. Last week, we looked at the road to Emmaus. This week, we look at um, the road to Damascus. It can be found in Acts 9, verses um, 1 through 20. Um, and find it on your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along, on page 127. And when we look at um, this passage, take note of the very first word in the passage. Meanwhile... And meanwhile, in Acts, up to this point, things are going really, really well. Um, they've, the, the Holy Spirit's come down, it's been Pentecost, and they're moving, and they're telling everybody about Jesus, and, and everybody's excited, and the Holy Spirit's at work, and people are being baptized, and people are being healed, and all kinds of miraculous things going. And then you get to the ninth chapter, about halfway through Acts, and it's almost like watching one of those little Batman um, um, shows back in the 60s, and you say, meanwhile... The Joker is down here. You know, it's like, meanwhile, Saul is over here. Things are going so good for all of these people when they found Christ. And you can tell this person named Saul was up to some things that um, is not, uh, well, are not good. Um, Saul, though, is also, we get to know him later as Paul. Um, this is Saul's conversion story. This is Saul's call story. Again, takes the name of Paul as we get to know him. Paul wrote the majority of the letters of the New Testament. And this is his story. I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, we might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind up all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring by my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the, for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with his disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. In Plato's book, The Republic, Plato describes the the experience of being in a deep cave, Uh, one that slopes downward at an angle near the bottom of the cave, or a group of people. The people are facing the back of the wall of the cave at its deepest point. Above and behind them, near the cave entrance, is a fire, which provides the light for the cave. Now, between the people's back and the fire is a puppeteer. The puppeteer moves around puppets, like depicting animals and plants and other things. And these shadow images are reflected on the back of the wall, which becomes sort of like a a cinema screen. Uh, This is the only reality the people in the cave know. Now, suppose, suppose that one of the people down in the cave were to get up, or uh, say that um, she was picked up. Either way, uh, suppose this person somehow made their way all the way to the entrance of the cave. Scholars suggest three things would occur almost immediately. First, uh, all of they would be practically blinded by the overwhelming light, having always previously lived with next to no light at all. The second, they would be overwhelmed to discover that the reality of the world outside the cave far exceeded the reality of the cave by any imaginable measures. And then third, they would instantly and painfully begin to process of re-narrating the history of their own lives and the nature of reality in the light of the wholesale new experience of the way things really are. I've had it explained to me that this is what it's like to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is like coming out of that cave. It's not necessarily a, a sudden thing because it's possible to see the light while still remaining far down deep into that cave. And it's also possible to linger at any point on the way, especially at the entrance of the cave. And it's even possible to go back into the cave if the world outside is just, well, too much or too scary or too wonderful to take in. It's not primarily about our own efforts. Because you can be carried up to the entrance of the cave. And you'll probably never know that the entrance was right there all along unless someone came down and told you that here's the entrance. 
And it's not necessarily about judgment of people of other faiths. It's not judgment about people with no faith at all. Because the important thing is not to obsess too much on the benightedness of the cave and the importance of getting out of it. The point is to concentrate on what it's like to live outside of the cave. And for early Christians, living outside of the cave was their only focus. Notice the, the name that Saul calls these followers of Jesus. They, he refers to them as the way. The way is what they called Christians at that time. Instead of wanting to be identified with a set of beliefs, these communities were known by their character. Oh, one, they implied that individuals and communities to live in this mundane caves of this world and venture out into a light walking down a road that's created for every one of us. The way suggests that faith is not just beliefs, but a living. The way is an active way of life. And this active way of life, first demonstrated by Jesus, and then carried on by his followers, disrupted the caves that saw and others had so carefully crafted and maintained. Now, before we go out and make Saul a villain, perhaps we should look at him not as a villain, but more as devout. Devout to his religion. Someone trying to protect their religion. Someone trying to protect their way of life. Someone trying to protect and preserve the life as they knew it. These followers of Jesus, in Saul's eyes, are just simply bad Jews. And they are people who have left the cave and met a disruptor and gone off the right and narrow. And now the only thing they need to do is they need to be rescued from their error or ways of living. So the letters that Paul, that Saul requests from the synagogues gives him the authority to clean them up, to clean things up, you know, to, to get rid of the riffraff, the strayers. What Saul is asking to do is not just to go after these people and to persecute them, but rather it's a correction of Jews gone bad. What's going on in the past this morning is not too much different than what our country is experiencing today. In a time in our country when everything is politically driven, every decision that we make is politically motivated from where we dine to the neighborhood that we move into, to the jobs that we take, to the churches that we attend. We've all been divided on two aisles. Depending on which aisle you fall on, we've been told to simply point at the other and say, Americans gone bad. And now with this recent news of war and uptick of COVID cases yet again, with inflation and interest rates and political discourse, and not to mention the, the mental illness that everyone in this room 
every one of us have seen up close and personal to a loneliness epidemic that is quietly but rapidly sweeping across our country. It's not hard to blame any of us from looking on the other side of the aisle and pointing fingers because at the end of the day, all we want is for things to get better. And perhaps this is the good news. When you pull, I guess the good news is this, when you pull back the layers, what we're all yearning for is the same thing. The research has shown by the Ministry Collaborative and as well as others that if we listen closely to the world around us, to people around us, we're, no matter what cave that we reside in, we're all starving for the same thing. We're starving for care and community and depth. And whether we know it or not, all of us inside the church and outside the church are yearning to hear the voice of Jesus. Care, community, depth. My Angelo once said, I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think to myself, already? You, you already got it? Well. I'm working at it, which means that I try to be as kind and fair and generous and respectful and courteous to every human being. This passage that we read this morning is not a conversion story. If we read it like a conversion story, we miss half of the story. The story really is our story. It's my story. It's your story. It's a call story that we and the rest of the world are craving to hear, moving us away of a life that stops us from pointing the finger across the aisle and say, American gone bad, American gone bad, but putting our fingers down and looking across the aisle and seeing the face of Jesus. The question for Lewinton Presbyterian Church this morning is if the whole world is craving to move beyond this, the puppeteer, puppeteer cave that we are given to encounter a world of care and community and depth, to encounter the risen Christ, then how do we become a safe place for that journey to begin? If we as a church take this way, if we take this call seriously, we first need to examine the simplicity and the complexity of that word safe. Uh, sure, safe is a place for us and others to join together, to navigate freely, to ask questions, to welcome the stranger as well as friends and family who think and dress and vote exactly like we do. And also to welcome the stranger and the family and the friend who think and dress and, and vote differently than we do. Safe welcomes our doubts. Safe challenges us. It challenges our convictions. Safe is patient with our interpretations. Safe meets us where we are. It gives us a shoulder to cry on and invites vulnerability. 
But as we continue to live in our calling, to live in this way, a safe place for all of us to know Jesus, don't be surprised that if at times it feels rather unsafe. Notice what Jesus says his plans are for Saul in verse 15. He tells Ananias that Saul will bring my name before Gentiles, before kings, before the people of Israel. In this way, this way of life, Jesus says, will result in Saul's suffering. Not very safe. And sometimes it happens like that on the way. And there will be those of us who are persecuted and made to suffer for Jesus' name. But for most of us, our call will take us to a different unsafe place. Take us to a place of just crossing the aisle. This was Ananias' call. To put his hands on the shoulder of his enemy and call him brother and then pray together. So simple, yet so complex. Fred Craddock vividly captures these two forces as he writes, The life of a disciple is one of faithful attention to the frequent and familiar task of each day, however small and insignificant they may seem. The one faithful in today's nickels and dimes is the one to be trusted with a big account. But it's easy to be indifferent towards small obligations while quite sincerely believing oneself fully trustworthy in major matters. The reality is, these sayings is that life consists of a series of seemingly small opportunities. Most of us will not this week christen the ship, write a book, end a war, dine with a queen, appoint a cabinet, convert a nation, or be a martyr. Most likely, this week will present no more than a chance for us to go into the safe, unsafe waters of giving a cup to a stranger, to write a note, to visit a nursing home, to vote for a county commissioner, to teach a child, to share a meal, pray with a friend, or shake the hand of whom you have no one, nothing in common with. Her name was Emma. Emma was a deacon at her church. She was voted to be a deacon. She was ordained. And, um, but when Emma became a deacon, she missed half of the meetings. And when she attended the meetings, she usually sat there with her arms folded, barely making a sound, never volunteering. Assuming um, he, what he would know the answer was, feeling a little bit unsafe himself, the pastor set out to call Emma. The youth needed just one more driver to take the youth once a month to the nursing home across town. The pastor called, and he asked Emma if she would do that. Surprised, Emma said yes. She wasn't very enthusiastic about it, but nonetheless, she agreed to drive the kids there. And when the day arrived, the deacon drove four of the youth to the nursing home, went to the room where the service was held, 
stood there in the back of the room with her arms folded as the youth led worship. About halfway through the service, someone started tugging on her arm. She looked at the, um, down to see this early man in a wheelchair. He was disheveled clothes, messy white hair. And he reached for her hand. And so Emma did the only thing that she could. She grabbed the man's hand. And there they remained holding hands for the rest of the service. The next month came. The same thing happened. Emma drove the four youth to the nursing home. She sat in the back, arms folded. The man in the white in the wheelchair saw Emma, reached out his hand, and the two of them held hands for that service. Month after month after month, Emma came. He reached his hand out. She held his hand for the service. Until one day, the man in the wheelchair with the disheveled clothes and the white, messy hair was nowhere to be found. Emma asked one of the nurses, oh, where is he? Oh, he's in his room. If you just go down the hall, the third on the right, you'll find him. You should go there. Before you go, though, know that he's dying. He doesn't have much time left. He's unconscious. But it would be nice for you to stop in and say a prayer. Emma had never done anything like this before. All she had signed up for was to drive the youth to the nursing home. But not wanting to make a scene or make excuses either, she decided to go into the room where she found tubes and wires and machines plugged to this man. His eyes were closed. He wasn't moving. He looked dead. But she could see him breathing slightly. Believing he was unconscious, Emma went to him. She held his hand and she prayed. It's a simple prayer. A prayer that God would receive this man to God's heavenly kingdom. When she finished, the man squeezed her hand. Surprised, embarrassed even. Thinking he was unconscious, uh, the man had heard everything. She began to cry. She squeezed his hand quickly and just hastily exited the room. As she was running sort of down the hall, Emma uh, bumped into a woman. She introduced herself as an elderly man's uh, daughter. He's been waiting for you, you know, the daughter said. What? Confused, Emma said. Yes, before he became unconscious, my father told me that once a month, Jesus came to this place. He said Jesus would take his hand and he hold it for a whole hour. I do not want to die until I have the chance to hold the hand of Jesus one more time. I don't know a cave that you find yourself in this morning. A cave of loneliness and anxiety. A cave of fear or unknown, just monotony. Or maybe for some of you all, you've reached into that cave and you see this light, unsure of where to go. But this is what I do know. That Jesus also found himself in a dark cave. And that God raised Jesus from that cave. And ever since then, Jesus has been on the loose 
working with God to raise you out of whatever cave that you were in and give each and every one of us life. A life that consists of care, connection, and depth. A life that holds the hand of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.